Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Good morning, everyone. I appreciate that. Well, this morning we're going to end the series that uh, has been going on a good part of the summer. Eight weeks that we've been studying or tracing the theme of spiritual flourishing. We've been tracing it through the Psalms, and now today we're in Psalm 146. So I wanted just to review real quickly before we jump into Psalm 146 about what is true flourishing. What are we talking about when we're talking about flourishing? I think we all have a concept of what flourishing means. Um, You know, if you're the kind of person who enjoys flowers, you plant flowers. Flowers flourish means they don't die. They grow and they fill up the pod and they're big and all of that, right? They go to really do well in Iowa. We grow a lot of corn. I don't know if you've noticed, but the corn is starting to change colors these days. And uh, corn flourishes when it it produces a really strong plant that produces a lot of kernels of corn on the cob. So we're about to find out just how much our corn flourished this year. If you have investments with your money, you want those investments to flourish, don't you? And all God's people say, yes, we do. There's nothing wrong with our investments flourishing. But that means that they're going to grow and they're going to expand and they're going to produce. And so in our mind, we think of flourishing as bigger and better, higher and to the right and all of those things. And when we think about what true biblical flourishing is, it's important for us to look at what it is, but it's also important for us to really understand what it is not. True biblical flourishing is not a promise of a life of prosperity, that if I become a Christian, everything I touch is going to turn to gold and my life is going to be just blessed beyond measure. If that is our expectation, we're going to be sorely disappointed. Flourishing is also not an insulation for us from suffering. You know, if you look in the Bible of the people that you would think were people who really flourished in their spiritual life because they're named in the Bible, you would think of John the Baptist. He was the one who made the way for Jesus. And you'd say, there was a man who was so spiritual that he got the job of making the way for Jesus. That is a man who was flourishing, right? That's, that's pretty rarefied error, and yet his life didn't end too well, did it? It, it just seemed like it was thrown away for nothing. We see Stephen. I, I don't know, have you, have you heard of the guy named Stephen? If not, in the book of Acts, this afternoon, read Acts 6 and 7. There's this guy named Stephen who was a special man. He was the guy that when the disciples of Jesus got so busy with everything that they were doing, they said, we need somebody that is of high integrity and spiritual maturity, somebody who is just a rock-solid person to help us take care of the feeding of people and the logistics and taking care of it. Everybody said, let's go to Stephen. And Stephen was just this guy that everybody loved. 
you think there's a guy who really flourished in his faith and yet because of his faith he ended up being stoned to death Matthew 8 says of Jesus that he had no place to lay his head Matthew 26 Jesus in the garden he said I am deeply grieved to the point of death he told his disciples to stay here and stay awake going a little little further he fell face down and prayed my father if it is possible let this cup pass from me yet not as I will but as you will and we know that in chapters 26 and 27 Jesus was arrested he was betrayed he was beaten he was mocked and ultimately his life was ended on the cross now let's back up and we think okay those guys who spiritually flourished their lives weren't what I think my life should be so I need to readjust what I think of when I think of spiritual flourishing I think a lot of times we wouldn't say it this way but I think we think you know okay that God here's the deal I'm going to do mostly what you want me to do And in return, I want you to protect me from all the really bad things. It's kind of a transactional thing you say. I do kind of think that I deserve to be protected because I'm trying to live. That's, That's not in the Bible. God does what God wants to do for his reasons. His ways are not our ways. The last thing that it is not is true spiritual flourishing is not a destination. It's not something that you achieve. It's not a permanent state. It's not like being a Supreme Court justice where you get appointed for life. Once I get to spiritual flourishing, I'm there. Now I can coast, right? No. That's not it at all. It's more like the Iowa farm ground, coming back to the Iowa farm fields, right? We have the best soil on the planet to grow whatever you want to grow, but our farming practices are so good that they extract all of the nutrients out of the soil so that those corn plants grow to be so big and they they produce so much that if we don't go back and nourish them and put back in fertilizer and lime and all the things that gets extracted out of the ground, It's called mining a field, like a coal mine or a diamond mine. You extract all the good stuff out, and what's left is worthless. You could plant the same corn in a field that hasn't been taken care of, and it won't yield anything. They're magnificent fields if they are taken care of, if they are nourished, if they are replenished. Spiritual flourishing isn't somewhere, once you get to be a pastor, you flourish. Once you get to be a deacon, you flourish. Once you get to be a Sunday school, whatever the the idea in our mind is, I get there now, I'm flourishing. My life is great. That's not true at all. So what is true spiritual flourishing? If that's all what it is not, what is it? Well, spiritual flourishing is spiritual completeness, health, peace, and joy. It's not the absence of pain and struggles. It is a wholeness that strengthens us to be able to walk through it with God. It's a spiritual completeness. In James chapter 1, 
In verses 2 through 4, it says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. That is where we want to be. We want to be spiritually mature, complete, lacking nothing, so that we can have the strength of our faith to see us through as we walk through life with God. So if that's what it is, what does it really look like? You know, it's one thing to understand theologically or technically what it says it is, but what does that really look like in my life today, this afternoon, tomorrow? What, what does spiritual flourishing look like in my life? Well, we, we've mentioned this before, but in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it said man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What it looks like, what true spiritual flourishing looks like is reflecting God's glory back to him. Let that sink in. There's nothing that I can produce in and of myself, but rather surrendered to him, I reflect his glory back to him. If I can do that in my life, I will have succeeded. That is all that he wants from me, is to, to surrender my will to his and to accept from him what he has and to be grateful. I just have been in two, two different funerals in the last two weeks, Greg's and then I had a good friend yesterday, a guy that was in his 79, I believe, and to hear the people talk about them, both of those guys had that as their testimony of people that came up as that they reflected the glory of God. They were godly men. Both of them, people come up with tears talking about how God had used that person to do a great work in their life. Oh, that that is true when, when our life is over, that our life reflected the glory of God. So today, oh, and I want to remind you, we've got these bookmarks back there at the Connect Center. If you don't have one, this is the last week of this. Grab one of these. This is not, you know, eight steps to a better Christian walk kind of a thing. Rather, these are categories of uh, things that we need to incorporate in our life for meditation focusing in, studying God's word, deepening in our word, confession, all of these things that are on here. I would encourage you to grab one of those. So today, today is the last one. Today is hope. Today is hope. So how does hope ref, uh, relate to spiritual flourishing? Well, in short, in verse 5 of, chapter, of uh, Psalm 146, it said, happy Blessed, you remember the word ashray that we talked about very early on if you've been with us? That, that's the Hebrew word for flourishing, for happiness, for blessedness. Is the one whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. The word hope has the idea of waiting. You know, there are two words for hope in Hebrew. One of them is just waiting. Like I'm waiting for my wife to get out of the store. I'm waiting for 
Christmas. I don't know. I'm just waiting. The other one is the idea of waiting with an eager expectation of something to happen. Now, we've all either been kids, had kids, no kids, whatever. I don't know if you've ever been in a multi-sibling family, but if one of your siblings is in trouble and they're not home, but you heard mom and dad talking and this sibling's in big trouble, you as a sibling are thinking, I can't wait for this one to get home because I know what's gonna happen. And so you sit there with eager anticipation of that person walking through the door because you know what's gonna happen. Now, I would just say, if you're in that class, have ever been in that class, I would encourage you to grab one of these and uh, go to number three, confession, because you shouldn't take joy in that. <clears throat> so let me be clear about that. That's not something we wanna do. But we have an eager expectation about something happening. That's what we're talking about here today. As we turn to our text, there's a simple contrast that we're going to see in Psalm 146. It's about two deliverers in verses 1 through 4. The first is in verses 1 and 2. It says, Hallelujah, my soul, praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing to my God as long as I live. This is the one whose deliverer is God. The second deliverer that is looked at is in verses three and four. Do not trust in nobles and a son of man who cannot save. When his breath leaves him, he returns to the ground and on that day his plans die. Now we're gonna see in Psalm 146 that there's a lot of history about the nation of Israel. We know that Israel has had a checkered past. Israel wanted a king. They were looking for a deliverer other than God. So there are two deliverers. There's God, everything else. God, not God. The nation of Israel, a lot of times, looked to something else. They, they wanted a king, so God gave them a king. That didn't end well. They wanted a God. Remember when Noah went, or when Moses went up on the mountain? He was talking to God, and he was getting the tablets, and they're sitting down there, the nation of Israel, waiting for him to come back for 40 days, and they're thinking, he's not coming back. All the other nations, they've got gods that they've made. Why don't we make some gods of our own? We want to be like everybody else, and so they made the golden calf. That didn't end well. They wanted a different God. They wanted a caretaker, so they went to Egypt. That didn't end well. Whenever we try to do something other than trust in God, it doesn't go well. The constant message was, Yahweh, you're not enough. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? But when we trust in things other than God and we try to solve life's problems apart from God, we're saying to God, you're not enough. I have to handle it on my own. So between those two deliverers, why did they choose the one that they did? Well, um, the one trying to choose ourselves that's pretty much self-explanatory, right? We all think that we know more than anybody else. We all think that we can get it figured out, but 
Why would they sacrifice that and choose God? We see in verses 5 and 6, it says, Happy is the one whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, the maker of heaven and earth. The sea and everything in them remains forever. And then jump down to verse 10. The Lord reigns forever. Zion, your God reigns for all generations. Hallelujah. One of the reasons to choose God is because of God's power. God is the creator God that created everything that is. I don't know if you've traveled the world much, but it's full of amazing things. I like the fact that they pull out of this the creator of the sea. If you've ever been around the sea, it is a magnificently powerful thing. Um, I was doing some research on tsunamis and Tsunamis is when the water comes into land and floods the land, usually as a result of an earthquake somewhere or whatever. But the power of the water that just looks like a line in the distance and it gets closer and closer and closer and then it overtakes everything and it just totally decimates an area. The power of the water is amazing. The first time I ever saw the ocean, I was uh, down in Florida with a group. We were going on a missions trip. I was in college and we went swimming. I didn't know what a riptide was. They had all these warning things up and these Iowa boys went and jumped in the ocean and we're swimming away. Next thing I know, I look up and we're like 200 yards from shore and I'm going, how in the world did that happen? And so they're, they're yelling and screaming at us to swim sideways because that's what you're supposed to do. But the tide was dragging us out to sea. The, the power of the sea was just amazing. You know, God is an all-powerful God. We, we saw some of that power three years ago in the derecho. A lot of you were here for that. I was just driving down oral labor going home, and all of a sudden it hit. And it was unbelievable, the power of that. And that's just the power of the creation that God created. Imagine the power of God himself. God is all-powerful. And he reigns eternally. Verse 10 says, The Lord reigns forever for all generations. He is without beginning and he is without end. So God is powerful, but as we talked about in the beginning, this, this psalm talks about the history of, of uh, Israel. It talks about his reputation. God has proven himself faithful and still is. In verses 6 through 9, it talks about what God is doing in the present tense. It says he's the maker of the, of the earth and seas and everything in them. He remains faithful forever, executing justice for the exploited and giving food to the hungry. Well, Israel remembers back to when God freed them from, the, from Egypt and he fed them in the desert. The Lord frees prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are oppressed. Israel is sitting there listening to these and thinking, yes, check, check, check. God did all of these in the history of the nation of Israel. It says, the Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects the resident aliens and helps the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. You know, you think about that phrase, he frustrates the ways of the wicked. Can you think of a couple of instances in the Bible where God clearly frustrated the ways of the wicked? Well, you can think of 
Israel coming through the Red Sea, right? And as soon as they cleared the bank, then God closed the waters up on the Egyptians. You can think of the fiery furnace and how that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to kill these guys. And he put them in a situation that it was impossible to live. God frustrated his plans and it did not work. God frustrates the ways of the wicked. Our God has proven himself to be faithful. And on that basis, on that evidence, the psalmist can say, the Lord reigns forever. He reigns to all generations. I like also the phrase in there that says, the Lord loves the righteous. The Lord loves the righteous. Not, not the religious, not the perfect. He loves the righteous. He loves those who reflect his righteousness. Feeding the poor, living in humility, serving others, considering others as better than ourselves. God loves that stuff. That's what our lives are supposed to be about. If we want to reflect his glory, he showed us in the life of Jesus what that looks like. Caring more about other people than ourselves and inconveniencing ourselves so that we could do that. True flourishing is reflecting God's glory back to him. But as I was going through this, I'm getting all excited. Then I realized there's a problem here. And the, the thing that was just nagging in my head as I was thinking about all of this righteousness was Matthew 19, 23 and 24. As Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it would be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. You think, okay, well, so what's the problem? Well, the problem is we're all rich here in this room today. Now, you may look around and say, well, comparatively, I'm not rich. You know, compared to other people in our society, I am not rich. And yet we all benefit from modernity that no other generations uh, had, had benefited from. It has brought us the ability to travel, to communicate, to fix illness with medicine, have access to food and water like never before. We take for granted access to food and water. We consume all varieties of media and information. We are rich and we don't even know it. Think about that. There is a warning in scripture that it is very difficult for rich people to understand their need for God. What we're doing in the way that we're living makes it incredibly difficult to eagerly anticipate the presence of God. We have so many cheap imitations to distract us. It's so easy to be deceived into believing that we don't need God, that we're doing just fine. And yet history testifies to the desire that man wants to create heaven on earth. And there are two consistent truths about that. 
The first one is the fact that left to his own devices, man wants to be God or reach God on his own terms. The second truth is that when man tries to be God or reach God on his own terms, he fails spectacularly every time. Adam believed the lie from Satan. When Satan said, you surely won't die, you'll be like God. And he thought, yeah, I'll be like God. Not only did his son kill his other son, but in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, as in Adam, all die. The consequences of that failure were the worst in all of human history. People during the time of Noah, in Genesis chapter 6, it says, every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. They thought they knew better than God how to enjoy life and how to live life, and yet that did not end well in the flood. The Tower of Babel, you remember those people, that's in Genesis 11, where they thought they could build a tower all the way up to God. And God confounded their languages and he scattered them all over the earth and they stopped building their city. They, were, they failed spectacularly. Do you think we have learned the lesson yet? Are we trying to be God or reach him on our terms? That's something we all need to seriously wrestle with. Who is God? Is it what I think he is, or is God God? Man fails every time. That's why in our text in verses 3 and 4, it says, Do not trust in nobles and a son of man who cannot save, for his breath leaves him, returns to the ground, and on that day his plans die. But the contrast to that is in verse 6. God never fails. He remains faithful forever. In verse 10, the Lord reigns forever. Your God reigns for all generations. Our hope, our eager expectation is in God. Verse 5, happy is the one whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. That's where our eager expectation, not just for this life, but for the life to come, both. Our eager expectation for today, we see in verse 8, where it says, in, in Psalm 143, verse 8, it says, Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love, for I have put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go, for to you I entrust my life. That's the way our day should start, every single day. Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love, for I have put my trust in you. Today, show me the way that I should go, for to you I entrust my life. Every morning we should get up and start our day that way. Okay, God, what are we doing today? What do you need from me? What do you want from me? Where, where, where are we going? I entrust my whole life to you. So every day, today, tomorrow, next week, but then for all eternity, John 14, verses one through three says, don't let your heart be troubled. 
Believe in God, believe also in me. If my father's house are many rooms, if it were not so, I would have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. I don't know about you, but the thought, and, and the last couple of weeks I've been thinking a lot about this. You know, the thought of going to be in the presence of God apart from the world of sin, apart from the struggles of this life, apart from the hardships and everything that's going on in life is something that I long for. But you see the struggle, don't you? This life has so much to offer us right now, doesn't it? We can hardly go a few minutes without grabbing our phone and looking at what's going on and who's doing what and what's my family doing, what's going on over here. There are so many distractions in this life that when we think about death, we're more worried about all that stuff that we're going to lose out on. Something is so messed up in all of that. How can all of that stuff compete with the glory of God that created everything and yet we let it creep into our lives? And so what we need to do as a result of thinking about this hope is to take stock in our lives and what are we focused on? To experience true biblical hope, we need to focus on three truths. The first one is focusing on who God is. That's, that's what the psalm started with. God is the creator God. He is the all-powerful, omnipotent, um, ever-present God. Then we need to focus on what he has done historically. God's word shows us throughout all of human history how he's been faithful from the very beginning to today. God is a faithful God, and we can see that in God's word. And then thirdly, to focus on what he has done in our lives personally. So my encouragement to you this morning is to start a gratitude list, if you will. Thanking him for the specific ways that God has been faithful in your life. You think, I'm... I'm going to need a big notebook, right? Of all the ways that God has been faithful in my life, I think it would be a tremendous exercise for all of us, no matter what age we are, to sit down and start making a list of how God has been faithful through all of these things. Not just a one-time thing, but then keep it current. Keep working on it. Keep adding to it. And then keep it always before you. The Bible talks about Ebenezer's, things that are reminders to us of God's faithfulness. And then to pray over it. Imagine a stack of pages of God's faithfulness in your life that you can pray over and thank God for his faithfulness. He has proven himself worthy of our faith and he is the only one that is deserving of our hope. We have an eager expectation 
every morning when we wake up that I'm going to live today with him. Today I'm going to surrender what I want to what he wants and I'm going to walk wherever he wants to go. And I have the eager expectation that when my days on earth are done, that I'm going to be with him. It's going to be awesome. That should be the driving passion of our life above any other thing that would seek to distract us. But I really like to do this. I really enjoy doing that. I'm not saying that you know, we can't have hobbies or anything like that. But if we ever put God on hold while we do something else, that's when we have to look at that and say, oh, I've got things out of whack. And it's, it's not that I'm thinking too much about my hobby or whatever it is. It's that I'm take, thinking too little about God. You know, Jesus in his earthly ministry, we see a number of times when the crowds of people were coming to him and he would go to a quiet place. It wasn't that he wanted to get away from the people. It's that he wanted to get to God so that he would refresh himself and refocus his vision on God because we can get worn down with people. And now we're living on this level instead of our vision being up here. So I would just encourage you, it's, it's just a little thing that you can do to set your focus on him and what he has done for you so that your hope can be firmly and constantly on him. Let's pray. Lord, you are magnificent. You are awesome. You are without beginning and without end. You are without peer. You are the only wise God. There is none like you. And we stand in awe of who you are this morning. We're so thankful that you saw fit to provide a way for us to have a relationship with you through Jesus. We're so thankful for your wisdom in delivering to us your written word that we can have to learn from. And Lord, we're so thankful for your forgiveness for your compassion, for your love. There is no one like you, and there's nothing in this life that can compare to you. May our hope always be clearly focused on you. May our lives be surrendered to you. May our lives reflect back to you your glory. But that's what we desire. Help us to be able to be those people for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Mm-hmm.